Welcome to Shofar Cape Town South Sermon Podcast. We trust that today's message will edify and strengthen your faith. I wasn't planning on sharing this, but um, I want to share a quick story um, that just I was just reminded about while we were worshiping when I in the prayer time, and I actually shared it last week at the, the student service. Also, wasn't planning to share it, um, but it's such a beautiful story. It's like a parable um, of of Jesus and what he does. And so the story goes like this: There's this man that that some other reason he got hold of this house. He bought this house, um, and it was a mansion. It was a massive house, ten store, uh, sorry, not ten stories, ten rooms. <laughs> Two stories, ten rooms, five on the bottom and five on the top story, right? And so, so um, you know, he's just moved into the house. He just settled and then he sat on the couch. And as he sat on the couch, there was a knock on the door, but a quite violent knock. And so he went to the door and, you know, being ignorant, he just, you know, it's his house now, and he's like having fun being the owner of this, this new place, opens up the door, and guess who's at the door? Devil. Devil's at the door, opens the door. The devil gets into the house and makes a mess, mess of it. The whole day, you know, he, he, he takes this man apart, he, 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 he brings temptation across his path, he he accuses him. He feels absolutely terrible. And by the end of the day, by some other way, he gets the devil out of the house. He gets the door closed. And just as the devil leaves, there's another do- knock on the door. Now he's a little bit cautious. And um, so he asks who's at the door, and the person responds and says, it's Jesus. And so he knows about Jesus. He says, Jesus, Jesus, please come in. You know, this is my house. I'd love you to come and stay with me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give you a room. Do you want to come and stay with me, Jesus? I'll give you the best room in this house. And he walks up the, uh, the, the, the stairs to the second floor, and he gets to the back room, the biggest room. He says, Jesus, this is the biggest room in my house. You can have this room. Um, Jesus is a gentleman. He says, thank you very much. And he goes and stays in the room. And just as he's given Jesus his room, there's another knock on the door. Guess who's at the door? <laughs> Devil's at the door. And so, you know, he's sort of learned from his mistakes, but he's not quite able yet to, to, to stop the situation. So he opens up the door in a little, little bit, and the devil gets his foot in the door, opens up the door, comes into the house, wreaks destruction again, pours temptation on him, and it's terrible day. He feels down. He feels depressed. He feels lonely. Um, and by the end of the day, by some or other means, he gets the devil out of the house. And so as the devil's out, Jesus comes down the steps and, he, and, he, and the man says to Jesus, Jesus, where were you? Right? I know you're powerful. I know you're more powerful than devil. I know you can d- destroy his works and I know you can do all these things, but why didn't you come and help me? He says, you know, Jesus being a gentleman, he says, thank you very much. Um, I got the room. You gave me the back room there, and I really enjoy the room, um, but the house belongs to you. And so the man says, I understand. I get, I get it. I, I realize my mistake. So Jesus, this is what we're going to do. I'll take the bottom part of the house. You get the top part. You get all five rooms at the top, right? Jesus, you can occupy all those. And so, again, as you can imagine, knock on the door. 
Yes, is there, right? <laughs> Devil's there. Gets into the house, wreaks havoc. You know the story. By the end of the day, gets him out. Jesus comes down the store. The man says to Jesus, Jesus, why did you not come and help me? He says, Who's, you know, Jesus says to the man, you've given me the top five rooms, but you still own the bottom. The man says, I realize my mistake, Jesus. I'm so sorry. Here are the keys of the house. Right, and as he hands the keys over to Jesus, there's another knock on the door. Can you guess who was there? <laughs> you got it. And so Jesus walks to the door, opens the door, and the devil says, sorry, wrong house, and he leaves. <laughs> Such a powerful story. And uh, I think it's so applicable to our lives. Um, and, you know, like Jesus would tell parables, this, this indicates some way in how we relate to God. We love Jesus, right? We love the idea of Jesus. He's our Savior. He does miracles. He helps us. Um, but sometimes we just give him some rooms. And it's, it's normally the Sunday morning room, right? Or it's the Wednesday evening room. But there's all these other rooms that are unoccupied or, we, or other things occupy these rooms. Um, sometimes we go as far as giving nine of the ten rooms to Jesus, and then there's this one room that Jesus cannot come into, right? Okay? But we should, what we should do is, of course, like that man, give the keys to Jesus, and then he takes ownership of the house. He takes care of the house. He makes sure um, everything is in order. Right, this morning... I know some of you have got your Springbok jerseys on. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be long this morning, but I want to conclude a sermon series. Um, or I think I'm going to conclude it. Let me not be presumptuous here. But I've, um, I've, I've done a series, and this is the fourth part on discipleship. And basically, um, the series answers the following question. How, what is... Uh, how does it look like to live this life with Jesus? That's, that's the question behind the whole series. What, what is, you know, Jesus calls it discipleship. He says, go and make disciples, right? He says, he, I discipled you 12, 12 disciples, and then you go and make disciples. And so the way that we meant to live this life, Jesus defines in this word discipleship. Okay, so we've looked at some of it. I'll do a bit of a recap. If you've missed any of this, don't worry. This morning is self-sufficient. In fact, brings everything together, so you're not going to miss out this morning. Um, but the specific focus for this morning is um, what we call calling, right? Being called um, for God for a purpose, all right? And so Romans chapter 8 to 28 says, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, and to those who are called according to his purpose. All right, so we love the fact that God comes and gives us purpose, right? We love the fact that he calls us, and, and now not only are we changed, not only are we made whole in the process of sanctification, not only are we you know, given new life, enjoy all the blessings of the kingdom, but there's a purpose that you and I pursue. There's a, there's a, there's a calling. And so I want to spend some time on this idea of calling. In fact, we're going to continue this at the camp next week. But so let's do a quick recap. So 
Um, if you can go to the next slide. There, boy, Tumela, thank you. Um, so those were this, the, 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 the topics for the previous one. And so the first one was disciple like Daniel. We looked at Daniel and how incredible um, he was in um, mentoring or discipling kings. Three kings he majorly influenced. Um, altered history by, um, you know, his influence on three guys. Um, and so I call that the motivation for discipleship. I'm going to come back to that. You're probably not you know, going to understand at the, at the get-go, but I'll explain it in a second. Secondly um, was um, uh, the vision, um, and it was, the topic was a vision for people. So there's motivation, vision, um, the value of discipleship, and then mission. Because it was disciple like Daniel, a vision for people, cultivating awareness, and this morning is called to his purpose. Romans chapter 8, as I just read. And so, there's three themes in this series. Three themes. People, the fact that God loves people, right? He, he, his heart is so towards people. He just constantly, that's what, what's on his mind. That's what's on his heart. He, he, he's, he loves the sinners, right? Um, he's, he's compassionate towards those that are suffering. Right, that's that's the heartbeat of the Father. Is what are happening um, with my people and 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 those that are His children that are well and full of joy. He's excited for them. So it's not like His heart is just with the suffering and the broken. His heart is with His children. He's excited when they when they you know achieve things. You know, so this God, His heart is all about people. That was the one theme. Um, the other theme is is it's God's work. Discipleship is God's work. It's a miracle, right? Um, he's at work. And the third theme is man's partnership. Um, God invites us into partnership with him. He's working. He's doing things. And all he's asking is us to, to listen. What is the Father doing? And then to, to action what he calls us to do. So it's a really simple process, but God is moving. And so the biggest thing is just where is your attention? Where is your attention? What occupies your thoughts? What occupies your mind? What occupies your eyes? Right? Is it the things of God or is it the urgency of the moment? Is it your phone or is it your priority list or is it circumstances around you or is it the thoughts of God? Right? We have the mind of Christ. And so my question this morning is what occupies your thoughts? Because if if your thoughts are occupied by the things of God, you will be um, in line with what God is doing. In other words, it will be, you'll be blessed. Um, and you'll know where to partner with Him to see effect and change in this life. All right. And so um, I want to look at Moses. Moses is one of my favorite guys. And he, he's almost like, you know, the, the, the men and the women in the Bible um, are given to us as examples on how to live. Right, and so we must l learn from these people. And so Moses was almost—he's almost one of the best guys, um, best examples in Scripture of someone that was called according to God's purpose. And um, his calling was not a very spiritual calling, but it was actually a very political calling. Right? It was—it had real life implications. This calling of Moses. So, can you imagine? 
Can you imagine? It's like, it's like again, it's history altering. Can you imagine Moses not obeying God's call? Just, just sort of think about it. That, that, and just for a moment, um, I, I don't want to ignore the sovereignty of God, but just for the moment, you know, some of you are thinking, well, if Moses didn't say yes, God would have raised up another person. And, you know, so it wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't have called him Moses. It would have been, I don't know, Peter. No, there's another guy, Peter. Joshua. You know, maybe a generation later, Joshua would have um, been raised up. So don't, just for a moment, ignore that. But look at the implications of a Moses not obeying God. Firstly, the Jews would have still been stuck in Egypt, right? They wouldn't have entered the promised land. Secondly, um, there wouldn't have been kings like Saul and David. And David was, you know, through his lineage came Jesus, right? And so massive implications. Jews um, probably would not have been a nation, right? Um, Can one man have such an effect on the world? Some of you are saying yes, some of you are saying no, right? The answer is yes and no, right? The answer is no. There's no ways that a man by himself can have such life-altering implications to this world, right? But God can through a man, right? And so God is at work, and he chooses man, um, to work through us. And so Moses, look at, I'm going to go through those four um, aspects of um, discipleship when we look at Moses. And, and so Moses, you know, again, he's, he's, he's this great example of someone, um, you know, he messed up completely. His, his, his whole, whole life had, had, this, had this divine, you know, you, know, you remember his, his birth, right? He was, he, was, he was meant to be killed. Right, and then his mother um, put him on the Nile, and you know Pharaoh's daughter found him, and you know you see that there's this divine hand on this little boy, okay? But at the same time, Moses messed up, right? He killed an Egyptian, um, and then he fought with his his brethren, and then he ran. He was a you know refugee. He ran into the desert, um, and he was a nobody and nothing at that time, and all because of his doing. Right, and then God intervenes again. He founds, he finds this this family. He marries a woman, and then one day he takes care. He's just the servant of um, the father's um, flock, right? And then we know we know the story. One of the greatest stories told um, is this prince of Egypt, right? Um, and so the bush starts burning, and it just burns and burns and burns, and it gets Moses' attention, and he. He, he, he draws closer to this, this bush, and God in this bush tells him of his purpose. Not Moses' purpose, God's purpose, right? And you'll notice that the title of the sermon this morning is called According to His Purpose, right? So many times in Christian circles, we talk about my calling, right? But it's not my calling. It's His purpose, right? I get to partner with His plan. And a subtle difference, massive implication. It's not my purpose, it's his purpose. In and through me, I get to partner with what God wants to do. And incidentally, he chooses me. Um, Reinhard Bunker, um, he says he was God's third choice. Right? He said, 
two people, God showed him, two people said no to, um, to God's call on their lives to go into Africa and to evangelize Africa. And then Reinhardt was the third one. And, you know, that was a real rebuke that, you know, um, Reinhardt got. He said, well, you know, if God could have, you know, decided to choose someone else, he can decide to choose someone else again, right? So I better get my act together and I better realize it's not about me. I better realize it's not about how cute and how smart and how clever and how anointed I am, but how amazing God is, right? And so he, he, he understood that. And so Exodus chapter 3, Moses stands before God. And four things I want you to notice about, um, about Moses and, and God calling him. And you're going to actually be shocked at the first one. The first one is the motivation. And one would think the motivation would be the people, but no, the people come a bit later. We'll, we'll see in a second. But he says, firstly, verse 20, chapter 3. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty handed. So God comes to Moses and firstly motivates him. And you would think that the motivation would be, look at my people, how they are suffering. Okay? You would think that is the Christian motivation, but no, it's not. Have you noticed that looking at people suffering is not a good motivation? And actually, mostly when we look at people suffering, we are despondent. We are like, what is what is going on here? What, you know, how desperate is the situation? You can look at going to places in Cape Town and look at the suffering and you can be really down and depressed. So God doesn't come to Moses and say, have you heard the cry of my people? We're going to get to it in a second. But no, firstly, he realizes Moses needs motivation, right? And he says, Moses, this is your motivation I will stretch out my hands and strike Egypt with all my wonders. See, the motivation that you and I need is it's going to work, right? All these desperate things, all these things that you see, but I will go with you and I will stretch out my wonders. See, we need, the first question as a disciple is we need to be convinced it's going to work, right? God is with us. And he's going to send signs and wonders. And, and I'm going to be Moses. I'm seriously scared. I'm, I don't even want to speak. I can't speak. In fact, my brother needs to speak on my behalf. Um, and, you know, I'm this, you know, refugee. And I'm just seriously afraid. But I'm going because I know this God that is burning the bush right here in front of me. It's a miracle that's never been seen before. He's going with me. Now motivated. Right now I can see, I can face the people, I can face my fears, I can face my greatest challenges, I'm motivated. Second one um, is vision. So verse 12, God says, I will certainly be with you and this will be a sign to you that I've sent you. When you, have, when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Right, God imparts vision into Moses. He says, Moses... You're going to go, I'm going to be with you. There's all, all these signs and wonders, but I'm going to give you this picture of what it's going to be, right? 
And maybe Moses had in his mind, you know, it's going to be five years, then we're going to be, you know, at this mountain. Maybe it was, you know, maybe he had a really unrealistic expectation. In the next two days, we're going to be at the mountain, you know. Uh, we don't know what his expectation was. But we do know he had a vision. God had given him this vision of a million people, million Jews that are in slavery. And it's a massive vision if you think about it, right? People in slavery, politically, there's no reason why Pharaoh should let them go because he's got slaves that built him an empire. Why would he let them go? But Moses, through God, received a vision for the people. These people will be free at a mountain, and they're going to be worshippers of God, free from, from any slavery. He could see it because God had given it to him. Now the people, God says, um, and then this is the value of discipleship. The value is, is we value people. Um, now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression which the Egyptians oppressed them with. So he says, the reason why we're doing this, here comes, here comes the people, right? The reason is we sing the suffering of the people. They cried out. And, and you'll notice that, that God responds by calling Moses in the midst of a place where the people start to cry. You know, we don't know why they took so long. They were 400 years in Egypt suffering under Pharaoh, right? Maybe not suffering all the time, but it took them 400 years. Then they cried, and then God responded. We don't know how, why it works like that, but God says, I cannot do anything unless there's someone that stands in the gap, a, an intercessor, right? Someone that stands between man and God. And so the people cried, and God heard. He responded by calling Moses. And then the last one, the final one, and we're going to dig into it, um, is verse 4. Um, this is now the calling part, the mission. So when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And then verse 10, Come now therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. So vision has a, a strategy component to it, um, but there's a calling component to it, which is, which is the biggest part. And you see that Moses... This, this moment of the burning bushes, is, it's his salvation experience, right? He had killed someone. He had been, you know, in the house of Pharaoh. So there might have been even, you know, pagan worship things that he got involved with. But this moment at the burning bush, God had redeemed him, had saved him, had transformed him. So it not, not only was it the place where he was called to a purpose, but he got saved in that moment. Right? God changed him and made him new. He would always look back at that moment at the burning bush where his life was altered forever, for eternity. His, his life had changed. All right? And so when you and I get saved, sometimes we get saved and then we think, okay, somewhere along the road I'll get my purpose. Right? Somewhere along the road I'll get my calling. It doesn't work like that. You get your calling right there when you are saved. Right? Moses, Moses. Right? He calls you. And he calls you according to his purpose. We started with Romans chapter 8. It says, God is able to work all things to the good 
of those who love him and those who are called according to his purpose. Right? And so, so whatever life throws at you, that difficulty, that suffering, whatever it is, um, you know, it, it might not be God's will, and some of it might be good, some of it might be really bad, right? But God is able to work it to the good of those who loves him and who are called according to his purpose, right? And so, so you can say yes to God saving you. It doesn't mean you're saying yes to the calling on your life, right? And we need to learn how to continuously say yes to him. It doesn't mean that when you are saved, you called for the first time, that you know exactly what your calling is, right? You don't. Mostly you don't. Maybe in, in Moses' case he knew, um, but he probably also didn't know the details and how it would look like. Um, but, but there's something in your spirit that understands, listen, there's a calling here, and then there's a lifetime of discovering what this call looks like. We're going to read a scripture in a second. Um, and how the calling sustains you. The calling takes you to places where, you know, you didn't think it would be possible, right? You didn't think it was in you to go through this and to do this, but because you are called according to His purpose, He makes all things work together for good, right? We love that verse, and, but it's, and it's so powerful, but we need to see it in the context of God's calling, right? Um, look at it in the perspective of, of Moses. Moses goes, miracles, signs and wonders, Pharaoh still hardens his heart and every time Pharaoh comes back at Moses, God turns it to good. Right? And he intervenes again and again. He's able to turn all the things that Pharaoh and the enemy throws at him for the good of his people. So something that is really important um, when it comes to calling and I'm, I'm almost wrapping up, is again to understand it's his purpose and I'm a partner to his purpose. I'm a partner to his calling. It's his calling and coincidentally, not coincidentally, it's by incidence, by God incidence, he's chosen you, right? But here's the challenge, here's the lie that the enemy throws at us. He says it's about you, Okay? You can write this somewhere. It's, it's never about me. All right? It's always about God. Man has been made this way. We are most fulfilled, most um, full of joy when it's not about us. That's the way we've been hardwired, pre-programmed to, to, to live life in a blessed way. It doesn't make sense, right? It's the other way around, seemingly. But have you heard that the gospel is the upside-down kingdom? Everything works the other way around. That's why Jesus blows our mind when he comes and he says, blessed are you when, you know, it doesn't look like it's blessed or when it doesn't make sense, right? It's the upside down kingdom. So it's his purpose. But something we need to understand, and it's illustrated so powerfully in scripture, and specifically um, with the life of David. Like I said, the, the men of scripture are examples for us to to not repeat those mistakes, um, but to say yes to God. And so we see in the life of David that he was God's anointed. Um, and he was the anointed, but there was, there, there's always the four parties in every, in every situation where 
God calls someone. There's the, there's the uh, unprofessional anointed. Then there's the ex-anointed. Who was the ex-anointed in David's story? It was Saul. Then there's the um, professional unanointed. Who was the professional unanointed in the time of Jesus? It was the religious leaders of the day, right? They were professional um, people, but they were not anointed. Okay, so they knew a lot. They knew the, the, the Torah. They could quote the law, and they could, like, bring up tradition like this. They were, as, you know, they would memorize chapters of the law. So they were like the professionals of the day, okay? And then um, there are the anointed professionals. Okay, so I, I, who's, who's read Evangelism by Fire? Some sort of rehashing, you, you, you would maybe remember this, this in that. So you'll always find that there's the anointed unprofessional, and the one that wants to take him out is the ex-anointed, all right? The one that God previously chose, but he turned his back on what God said. He followed his own purpose. In the case of Saul, he had believed that it's about him. Saul believed the lie, it's about me and it's not about God's purpose. So Saul walked away and the moment God chose David, he wanted to kill David. Because David reminded Saul of what Saul had left behind. And, and really, he was, he was saddened by what he had left behind, but he was not willing to repent, okay? Then, um, the professional unanointed always want to persecute, persecute the anointed, right? They, um, they realize what they don't have, and they realize the, that God has chosen this person, and again, envy is stirring their hearts, at the root of what we see with the religious people and the Pharisees in, in, in the New Testament is envy. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but Dr. Kone Backer says he studied the scripture. He always thought pride was the ultimate sin, but he realized, no, the ultimate sin is envy. Right? Someone looking at another person and thinking, I want that. Right? I want what you have, and I'm not going to get it um, in legitimate means. I'm going to take it from you. Right? That is the ultimate sin. The original sin of, of, of the devil wasn't pride. It was envy. He wanted to be like God. Okay, So there was envy in his heart. Um, and then eventually it says, if, if, well, eventually if the anointed continues in the, continue, continues in the ways of God, then at some point he becomes professional. Right? He becomes really good at what he does. In, initially, he's a David. He's like this young guy, tending the sheep. He knows nothing about war. He knows nothing about what God calls him to, but he has the anointing of God, right? the supernatural ability of the Holy Spirit upon his life. As he continues to do what he does, he becomes good at what he does. Right? It, it, it's inevitable. Okay? But now, here's the challenge. Here's the temptation. And by the way, you, you are anointed. Okay, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, it means you are anointed by the Holy Spirit of God. Okay, but as we grow in God, we might become good at what we do. Okay, the temptation then is to say, 
Well, I'm going to rest in my professionalism. I'm going to rest in the fact that I'm a professional anointed and miss the emphasis that I'm the anointed of God, right? And even to an extreme where we actually, you know, are the ex-anointed, okay? Because, again, that lie can creep in where it says it's about you. You see, if the emphasis is that I am a professional anointed, then the emphasis becomes me. Yes, I've become really good at what I do. Yes, I can do this. I can, I can make it work. And you see where the lie then creeps in to say, well, you are the professional. And the moment we do that, we lose the emphasis. And we're in danger of becoming the ex-anointed, like a soul was. Right? So God calls us, and then he anoints us. But let your confidence always be his anointing on you. And not what you've achieved or what you've done or what you've become. Let it always be um, on that pure innocence, that pursuit of God, and, and, and the, the, the boldness that comes from relying on His Holy Spirit. Two scriptures and then we're done for this morning. 1 Peter 5 is 6 to 7. Therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. It's such a powerful leader session in church this week. We spoke about humility. And humility, and the powerful thing about humility is humility is something that you choose. Right? Many things in the kingdom God does on your behalf. Always, almost just comes and he needs your permission. Right? To do it. With regards to humility, he doesn't do it on your behalf, right? You do it on your behalf. That's why the scripture almost commands us and says, humble yourself, right? It's something that you do. It's not something, some mistakes we sometimes make is we say, God, please humble me. Bad prayer to pray, by the way. Um, sometimes God answers your prayer. Don't do that, <laughs> okay? You choose to humble yourself. The scripture says, Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, right? One day when Jesus comes back, every knee will bow. We might as well bow the knee right now and continuously learn to bow the knee. That's called humility. But humble yourselves. And then the last one, in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 8 and 9, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. You see that it's the anointing of God and He's calling on your life that sustains you, right? Um, if, 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 if you are not called by God and you face the sort of things that you're meant to face being called by God, you won't be able to handle it. Your body will not handle what you need to go through. Your heart will not handle it. Your faith will not handle it unless you are called by God. And so when you obey God's call, about God's call, it will be difficult. You will not be able to make it in your strength. But, but, but like we see with these, this, this statement by these believers that are called by God, is even adver in adversity and difficulties, it's like the calling carries you. But if you believe that it's my calling, and you don't realize, but it's God's calling, 
then you're going to carry a heavy burden. You're going to try and make it work. You're going to try and make it happen, and you're not going to be able to because it's His purpose. Sometimes, and this is sometimes difficult for us, you almost need to sta- stand back sometimes. This is, this is the hard part sometimes. When you're really passionate and committed to the call of God in your life, sometimes you just need to stand back and you need to say, God, this is your calling. This, I cannot do it. And actually, your, 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 your step of faith is saying, God, I'm going to take my hands off this. The temptation is to try and figure it out, try and sort it out. But if you are calling me, then you can do it. Right? And I'm not talking about a false, humble position where we stand back and we do things, you know, or we say, God, you must do it when he's called us to do it. I'm talking in a, in a place of faith where we realize, God, you must come and do it. It's your work. It's, it's, it's your ways. Your ways are higher than my ways. I don't always understand it, but, but come and work your purpose in and through me for your glory. Won't you stand with me this morning? So we're going to pray. Father, thank you that, that we can gather together, God. As you have said to us, God, through your prophetic word over this church and this property, that this will be a gathering place for lions. God, those that are called according to your purpose. God, not just those that go through life, maybe are saved, but you have called Father, many of us to affect real change to real life situations in the real world. God, to leave this life with a real mark on this world, on history that affects eternity. And God, we thank you that this morning you awaken again the call of God in our lives. Thank you that you rekindle the flame in us this morning. Thank you that you awaken destinies, God. And you pull us up, Father. Some of us, God, we've made mistakes. But God, mistakes was never the limiting factor. Mistakes was never too hard for you. God, you are able to cover every sin into everything that we've given up on, or done wrong. But what you do look at for, Lord, you look at the heart. You look to see hearts of David's, Lord. Hearts that say, yes, God, I cannot see myself doing it, but I believe you. I trust you. God, I see the giants, but I'm going for it. And I'm not going to hold back. I want to pray for you this morning. Some of you We're going to pray that God would just rekindle that calling in you and awaken something in you and strengthen you again and put the emphasis in the right place on His anointing and on His grace. But before that, I want to give an opportunity for, for several of us. I feel that several of us that just needs to make right with God. You're here this morning. And your heart is not at peace. Your heart is not at rest. Maybe you're far away from God. Maybe you've made some decisions that's put you on a different path. 
God says, come back. Because my ways are higher than your ways. It's not just different than your ways, but it's a better way. Because God is a good father. He cares for you and he's got the best in store for you. But in order to have what God has for you, you need to surrender all to him. Not just one room, not the five rooms, not nine rooms, all ten of the rooms needs to belong to Jesus. And so right now, I'm not going to rush this moment. This is the most important. If, if this is the only thing that happens this morning, it's all worth it. But this morning, bring the rooms of your heart before God and say, Jesus, maybe I've given you all rooms, but I keep the keys in the back pocket, my back pocket. I take charge. I determine when I go in, when I go out. I determine where I go. I've not surrendered the keys to you, Jesus. You're not the king of my life. I remember the moment where Jesus became the king of my life. From that moment, he determined all decisions, everything I did. Up till that point, I liked Jesus. I loved Jesus, but I didn't love him as the king. I loved him as my savior, the one that comes to help me when I'm in need. But this morning, there's an invitation, and it's not mine. It's a holy invitation for you to say, God, I surrender to the king. Come and be king of my life. Come and take charge of all the rooms. If that's you, why don't you stretch out both your hands to the heavens. Say, Jesus, I surrender all. Thank you for those hands. Is there anyone else? Just surrender this morning. Don't fight. There's a battle in someone's heart. I can sense this battle in you. You're asking all these questions. You're trying to figure out how will it look like. Don't do that. It's, if you go that route, you'll never come to the conclusion that you need to surrender. The way you surrender is in putting your trust in God.